Well, good morning, everyone. Stand in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So great when we can sing our theologies and have it be good music and good theology at the same time. I hope you'll take a chance to be with us this next weekend as we, the school and the church, as we re- continue to reach out to the school community and the larger community, come and celebrate with us on, on Friday night at the Fall Festival. I think it's going to be a great evening of just outreach and fellowship, and we look forward to meeting the families that send their children here, and I hope that you'll be part of that uh, this week. Special greeting to those of you joining us online this morning. Good morning. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for using the medium of the internet so we can dialogue together, communicate together, be around the throne of grace together, study the word of God together. On behalf of all of us here, good morning in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The late Leonard Bernstein was an esteemed conductor, composer, pianist, music educator in the 20th century. He received international acclaim and many, many awards for his works in music, theater, and film. Among his best-known works include the musical West Side Story and the movie On the Waterfront. He was the first American to have the privilege of leading a major philharmonic orchestra conducting the New York Philharmonic where he performed for, among others, presidents and helped launch the Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts. He himself was a gifted musician, and he was once asked to name the most difficult instrument to play. Without hesitation, he said, the second fiddle. I can get plenty of first violinists, but to find someone who can play the second fiddle with enthusiasm, that's a problem. And if we have no second fiddle, We have no harmony. I think if ever there was a motto or a descriptive phrase to describe our contemporary culture, it is the unwillingness of anyone to play second fiddle. In our narcissistic age, we're called to go for the gusto, to come out on top, to be number one, because you deserve it, to put ourselves above others. It's in this type of culture where people wear t-shirts that say, I'm kind of a big, idea, big deal. So how can we live as Christians in such a context? How can we follow the one who calls us to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, to consider others as better than ourselves, to outdo one another in showing honor as we read in our invocation passage? Well, thankfully, those questions are not new for believers. And the passage that we're going to consider this morning, Jesus hits at the heart of the gospel by saying that humility is not only the way to enter the kingdom of heaven, it is also what is expected of all who call on the name of the Lord. And so as we get ready to continue in our study in the gospel according to Matthew, this morning we're going to consider this passage, Matthew 18, verses 1 to 9. And in honor of God who has given this word, I invite you to stand as I read it and as we prepare to study it. And the true word of God says, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly, I say to you, 
Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. This is the word of the Lord given to us this morning to teach us about the importance of humility and of dealing righteously with the sin in our lives. Let us receive it for its intended purposes. Please be seated. And let us pray. Our Father and our God, we turn to you this morning, and in these moments that you give to us, we thank you for the privilege to freely and peaceably gather in your name and in this place. Father, we are mindful that believers around the world do not have this opportunity Sunday by Sunday. Many of them have to gather under the shadow of war and violence. Many of them have to gather under the threat of persecution and jail. But we face no such fear this morning, and so, Father, we give you thanks that we can be here, that we can hear from you, that we can fellowship one with another, that we can sit at your feet, that we can proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, give us attentive ears and eyes and hearts and minds this morning to take advantage of this blessing that you have given to us. Take heed to what you have said in your word and to know that when we leave this place this morning, we will have met with you, the living God. And as a result, we'll have been changed and we'll have grown more and we'll deepen in our understanding of who you are. So teach us in these moments, for your name's sake and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. As we begin chapter 18 now in the gospel according to Matthew, we begin a new teaching section from the Lord Jesus Christ. Many commentators refer to this as the fourth major discourse in the gospel according to Matthew. To put it in more simpler terms, this is the fourth major portion of concentrated teaching from our Lord Jesus Christ. You've noticed that at times in, in Matthew we have concentrated sections of miracles. Well, here we have a concentrated section of teaching. And as we saw last week, Jesus and the disciples are still in Capernaum, where they have arrived after their time in Caesarea Philippi. And we're told that they're going to remain there until chapter 19, verse 1, when they will begin to leave that region to go to the region of Judea. Now, in Matthew 18, over several paragraphs, Jesus is going to teach about the community life of the kingdom of heaven. As we saw in Matthew 16, verse 18, he said, I've come to build my church, and the gates of hell itself shall not prevail against it. The, the church, which is the entry gate, the entryway to the kingdom of heaven. And as the church is being built, 
The church is a spiritual body of all who come to faith in Christ. Jesus teaches what this new community life should look like. And so over the next several weeks, we're going to consider section by section what is in chapter 18. And I have to say, it's going to be a challenge for all of us. Jesus brings up many challenging issues in this section of having a childlike faith, of watching over one another, of not causing others to stumble, of seeking those who have gone astray, of dealing with sin in the community, of forgiving one another, of reconciliation and restoration. Indeed, there is much in this section that will challenge us, and that's a good thing because it forces us to bow before the one who alone can make a difference in our lives and who alone can help us to apply his word. This section is for the church writ large, but it's written for all of us as Jesus calls us into a covenant commitment of community living that comes only through living out the truth of the gospel. And we'll see that the Lord loves to put hard things in his word so that we're all pushed outside of ourselves, outside of our comfort zone, outside of our normal way of doing things, and are forced to rush into his gracious hands for strength and for understanding. And as we begin chapter 18 today, we will see that we'll be challenged to show humility towards God, humility about ourselves, humility towards others. So may the Lord draw us into ever-deepening dependency upon him and love and adoration for him, that he would be lifted up and that we might be lowered down. Well, with all of that as our introduction this morning, I encourage you to turn to your sermon outline, either on your app with, from our church or in your, your bulletin, and we get to our first major point, which is a foolish argument, a foolish argument. And the text begins. At that time, the disciples come to, came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? You know, the disciples were an interesting lot. They had an array of gifts and abilities and talents. They brought with them different background experiences, and they brought them with them into the family of faith. And as Jesus is calling them individually to follow him one by one, they're learning what it is to follow Jesus, to walk with him as a group, as a community, not just as a set of collected individuals. And so here we find themselves arguing among themselves about who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, we can get more information about what was going on if we look at the parallel account in Mark chapter 9 and in Luke chapter 9. The conversation seems to have gone on for a while because they're arguing about it along the way. And in fact, by the time we get to Mark chapter 9, verse, chapter 9, verse 34, it says that the disciples were reduced to silence. When Jesus says, what were you talking about along the way? Now imagine being in a boasting contest about who is greater. And you're doing it for a while, and it's getting chippy, and it's getting a little hot and heated. And then all of a sudden Jesus says, hey guys, what were you talking about along the way? And I love how refreshing the scriptures are in that they, they reveal who human beings really are. Continually points us to the fact that it is Jesus who is the hero, not us. And I sometimes wonder, as we look at these soon-to-be spiritual leaders and they're boasting about who is greater than among themselves, if you, if you study the history of the church over the 20 centuries as God has pushed the church forward, we find that we're really not that much different than these men on this particular walk. For we all have the temptation to want to puff ourselves up just a little bit 
And we find it a little off-putting in others, but we find ourselves doing it. Even as we are not attracted to one who always seems to boast about what he has or about what he can do, about what he can bring to the table, do we not find ourselves at times doing the same thing? And so instinctively, we know that there's a better way. Instinctively, the Holy Spirit is living in us. We know that it's, it's not to be about us. We're not to make ourselves the center of every conversation. And maybe we should heed the, the wisdom that is found in Proverbs 27. It says, let another praise you, and that's your own mouth. A stranger, and that's your own lips. You know, when we were serving in Senegal, there was a man in the church that had a, had a big personality to match his presence. He was never uncertain, but he was often not right. And it was always about him. And only his way of doing things was the way it could be done. And he had all the experience, and he had all the rituals. And I, I, it was so off-putting. He divided himself. He divided so many relationships. And I think as we start out today and we look at the, the apostles who are boasting among themselves about who is greater, let's not be that guy who seems to carry around his resume and wants to tell everybody about how he's all that and more. In Matthew 18, the disciples are beginning to understand that Jesus will soon suffer and die. And so perhaps that leads to a logical question. Well, if he's going to die, who will be next up in the kingdom of heaven? Who can make a claim to be in the second position? That's partly behind what's going on in this conversation. Has Jesus just not spoken in the previous paragraph about the kings of the earth and their sons and the privileges that they have? And they do not have some understanding that Jesus is a king and that they belong to him? So who amongst them is going to be this privileged one or the privileged ones? And if we dig down a little deeper and we begin to look at the men that are involved, we come across Matthew, who's a former tax collector, who, before he came to Christ, was actively working for the Roman Empire. He liked the status quo. But on the opposite side, you have Simon the Zealot, also one of the apostles, who worked for the revolutionaries, who wanted to overthrow the Roman Empire. And we have Peter, the one who is constantly speaking on behalf of all the, the apostles and even at one time was commended by Jesus, though was also rebuked by Jesus. Just think of the conversations these types of men would have as they're walking along the road. Which one of us is going to be better? Some of them had even had the privilege of seeing the glorified Jesus. Well, wouldn't that make them more important? They'd all heard about the sufferings and the death of the Messiah. They all had some vague ideas about the kingdom of heaven and that Jesus was a king. Perhaps there's visions of greatness and power dancing in their heads. But as often is the case, we see that they had limited hearing. For had not Jesus already said something about not seeking greatness for oneself? Had he not already said that to follow him we must deny oneself and take up the cross and follow him? Had he not already made clear that before there could be a celebration and glory, there had to be suffering, that the cross had to come before the crown, that a theology of suffering had to come before a theology of glory? So back to the argument, who will be the greatest? Well, is it Matthew? I mean, after all, he understands money. So he should be the one that would be second in the kingdom of heaven. Or what about Peter? He was a professional fisherman. He had natural leadership. Or what about Simon? He knew how to fight. He knew how to go for a cause. What about John? 
who is called the one whom Jesus loves. So as they're arguing among themselves, you can almost imagine, well, I think I would be really good being the minister of defense or minister of finance or minister of whatever in the kingdom that is to come. And they're getting things mixed up. Yes, they had heard that whoever was the least in the kingdom of heaven would be even greater than John the Baptist, who was the last of the Old Testament prophets. But we see what happens when we don't put the whole counsel of God together, when we don't put all that Jesus has said together, and we can get off into tangents. So yes, there's a desire that we all have for greatness, and if that is channeled into the proper ways, for the proper purposes, under the proper power, in the proper time, they can be grateful and useful. I mean, this is why we study the history of the church, where we see God has raised up men and movements to address social issues, to bring the gospel to the four corners of the earth. My wife and I have been reading this week on the life of William Wilberforce, the great evangelical Christian who was at the forefront of the abolitionist movement. So if these things are channeled in the proper way, they can accomplish much good. But here we find these men and a foolish argument. And so Jesus will remind them that humility is the path. Humility is the path. Because the sad fact is that the aspiration for greatness is often not channeled properly. And it can tempt us to seek personal kingdom building, reputation propping up, if you will, often at the expense of others. We're surrounded by it. In a world of business cards and plaques on the wall and hits on a web page, likes on a social media post, trophies on our shelves, money in the bank, we're tempted to think that personal achievements are the secret to greatness. But greatness, true greatness, is only achieved in receiving God's grace by faith through the Lord Jesus Christ. The disciples had missed the true meaning of greatness. And so Jesus is going to have to lead them to a true definition, which looks very different in the kingdom of heaven than it does among the kingdoms of men. And so as Jesus is teaching them that humility is the path, he begins by reminding them of the lowly status that they are to aspire for, the lowly status. Verse 2, and calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So he calls his disciples. They've been walking on this trail. They've been having this conversation. He says, guys, gather around. And he takes a small child. And he puts this child in their midst. And we see also he took him into his arms and he set him beside himself. We can see that there was an ongoing conversation that was going on as we compare the accounts in Mark and Luke. And so imagine the contrast. A small child in the midst of grown men to whom Jesus then says, unless you turn and become like a child, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. This turning is a call to conversion. It literally means to turn around. You're on the wrong path. You're heading towards a path that's going to end in destruction. Turn around. And while this might refer to their initial conversion of coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it surely is a call to turn away from their worldly way of thinking and thinking like one who truly belongs to the kingdom of heaven. And so we might be tempted at this point, well, why would Jesus use a child as an illustration? And I think as we study how children were viewed in the ancient world, 
this will help us understand why this would have been a very powerful illustration. In those days, in the ancient world, children were not valued primarily for who they were. They were valued primarily for what they could bring to a family, that they could increase the wealth of a family, that they could increase the defensive capacity of a family, they could increase the workforce of a family, they could keep the family line going. It was all about the community and greater good. A child in and of himself had no individual rights and was seen as powerless and helpless by the larger society. He could not advance his own agenda. He could not live on his own. He was seen as one who was completely dependent on his family for life and survival. Simply put, a child had no status on his own in the ancient world. He was in a state of dependent humility. And that is the primary characteristic of the child that Jesus underscores here. That of humility, dependent humility, which leads to trust, dependency, confidence, hope in a power greater than itself. And we're not given the name of the child or to whom the child belongs, and perhaps that adds to the point that we're to stop trying to make a name for ourselves, but to focus on making his name great just as a child is dependent on his parents for everything. So we are to be dependent upon the Heavenly Father. And that reminds us then, as we think of this attitude of dependency and how we're, we need to see ourselves and see God and see ourselves in relation to others, it's a good reminder then from James, the half-brother of our Lord, who said, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. True grace, or true greatness, I should say, is being born again into the kingdom of heaven, and it's completely a work of God. We can take a princess who is born into a royal family, but it's not at all because of her own efforts. She becomes a princess because of her birth, not because of anything that she has done. The one who is born, or who is, as a child is born again, who has this childlike trust in the Father, is not great because of anything that he has done, but because now of his connection and dependency upon the one who is truly great, his heavenly Father. So as we contemplate this lowly status, it means that we need to go down to go up. We need to go down to go up. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So in response to the disciples' request about who would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says that they are to become powerless and helpless. They want to know who will be greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and Jesus has to remind them what it is to even enter the kingdom of heaven in the first place. To enter into the kingdom of heaven is to become like that child, dependent, trusting, believing, confidence in God. And that is why then it is the truly humble person who will be great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, unless you are like a child in trusting, confident faith in the Father, you will not be saved. So where is the room for boasting about ourselves? There is no room for boasting about ourselves, depending on ourselves, wanting others to see us as greater than we truly are thinking that somehow we deserve something from God, because after all, doesn't he know who we are? 
And so we need to take to heart then what Jesus says in Matthew 7. But Lord, did we not do all these things? Did we not serve you? Were we not active? Was our name not on a list somewhere? And he says, away from me, I never knew you. The reality is that we need to be known by Christ. And that only happens as we humbly repent and believe and admit that we are completely dependent upon him. And so there's a warning here to these apostles, to these disciples, that they need to humble themselves to see their utter dependency upon God, their helplessness without him. And then and only then can they enter the kingdom of heaven. And then as they are humbled, as they recognize who God truly is and who they are, they don't compare themselves with one another anymore. Because in our comparison game with one another, we're really clever. And it always seems that as we compare ourselves with one another, we always end up just a step or two ahead. Our standards always just have us just on this side of passing, but others just on the other side of passing. But what if we compare ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ? Which is really the only comparison that counts. We all are on our knees crying out for the mercy of God on people such as us. As author Philip Brooks says, the true way to be humble is not to stoop until you are smaller than yourself, but to stand at your real height against some higher nature so that that will show you the real smallness of your greatness. You get it? Stand in your fullness, but in comparison to Christ, your greatness is very small indeed. So by this, Jesus is issuing a sharp and stark warning to these apostles. Check yourselves. Are you really in the kingdom of heaven? Are you really trusting in me like a child trusts in his parents? And are you giving all the credit to me as the Lord, as the Savior, as the King, as the, mag- as the majestic one? After all, it's my kingdom, and I am the Savior. We need to listen carefully at this point because sometimes we may hear this expression childlike faith and we'll get a wrong idea about what that means. You see, to have a childlike faith is not to have a childish faith. A childlike faith trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ childish faith is prone to think more of himself his wants his ways his desires his needs and to point out he's not getting everything that he wants but that kind of faith is what is denied here and to be put away a childlike faith is a faith that recognizes that it is only what christ did that saves that it is only as we repent and believe and receive the grace of god by faith that will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, having a childlike faith does not mean that we shut off our brains and simply believe. No. Now, having a childlike faith, trusting in God, believing that we can walk with him, that he says what he says and means what he means, and he is trustworthy, now we are empowered to be able to go on to maturity and trusting God step by step over a lifelong commitment of trust in the Lord. Now that we are in Christ, 
and trusting him, we're enabled by the Spirit of God to, command, to pursue the command to love God with all of our minds. It's only in that childlike faith that we can go on to maturity and true understanding and true growth, the type of faith that is shown in rigorous daily reading of the Bible, that is showing an active repentance and confession of our sins, that is showing an active obedience to the commands of God and joyful service to those around us and putting to death the deeds of our flesh. It is a recognition that it's all about Christ, day by day, moment by moment, from the beginning of our salvation experience until the end. And in the words of the hymn writer, Augusta Toplady, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, save me or I die. It's a recognition that all that we have in the Christian life comes because of Christ, who leads us and who guides us and who gives us strength to obey him and to worship him and to walk in that humble dependence and trusting confidence on that pathway to eternal life. Humility is the path that leads to eternal life. And as an application of that humility, then it brings humility towards Jesus. Humility toward Jesus. And as Jesus continues with this idea of childlike faith, he calls on the church to receive those who have equally been touched by the grace of God. And so he says, receive them. Verse 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Now, we need to pay attention here because Jesus is doing a, a little bit subtle change here. He's continuing with the idea of child, but there's some things that indicate the meaning of child has changed here, not just from a physical child, but as a child who represents one who is a believer in Christ. This child who humbles himself like, like a child, who's dependent upon God, who trusts in him for eternal salvation. As commentator Michael Wilkins says, the little child is the true disciple who has humbly received God's enabling mercy to enter the kingdom of heaven and who is now serving God. And Jesus has already used this image of my little children several times in Matthew to show that this is an image of his children, believers, those that are trusting in him, those that are leaning upon him. Earlier in the gospel, he says those who receive a prophet because he is a prophet will have a prophet's reward. Those who receive a righteous man because he's a righteous man will have a righteous man's reward. He who receives this one in my name, there will be blessing. And how are we doing? Are we willing to receive all those that God is bringing to us in Christ? And I think all of us need to continually check the door of our hearts. Is it open to receive? Is it open to welcome? Is it open to unfold? Is it open to whoever the Lord is bringing? Because Jesus gives the words, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. You see, it's the Lord that's building his church. It's the Lord who is the king. He's the, the ruler from beginning to end. It is all his work. And that's how we can understand it. Then he who began a good work and you will carry it on to completion. Why? Because it's his work. And Jesus wants to make it very clear. So in the original language, he puts 
the, the word me actually towards the front, and in the original language, when you put a word towards the front of the sentence, it gives more emphasis, so it literally says, me, me he receives. Whoever receives one such child in my name, me, he receives. It's all about Christ and what he is doing and who he is. And then think about what the contrary of that means then. If we do not receive one in his name, what does that mean in our reaction towards the Lord Jesus Christ? So if we are to receive them because they're in Christ, then in follow-up we're not to deceive them. Verse 6. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. So as Jesus begins this teaching section, talking about the church and her responsibilities and watching over one another and caring for one another and growing together with one another in this every member responsibility that we see here, we now understand in a greater way why in so many of the letters of Paul and in Peter we have these one another commands. Love one another, serve one another, pray for one another, defer to one another, and on and on it goes. Because that's what we're called to. That's how we live out this community life that we're called to in Christ. So this child, this new and young believer who's a true believer is to be received by the church and if we do so, it's receiving Christ himself. But woe to those who mislead these believers as they will bring pain upon themselves. Now, Jesus has spent all of his time in public ministry so far modeling what he's teaching. He never wastes an effort to teach, never wastes an effort to model, never wastes an effort to show how we put into practice what he is teaching us because there's an important principle here. As they are following and observing and keeping, as it were, the model of Jesus, it's a reminder then that new believers want to follow older believers. They want to learn how to pray, how to talk, how to share the gospel, how to interact, how to deal with stuff, how to live out life. And the challenge then that is that we need to live in such a way that the paths that we are tracing will cause them to follow more and more in the pathways of Christ into greater spiritual maturity. And so the church then is called to live in such a way that new believers are not misled by what we think or what we say or what we pray or how we act or what we do. Because they're going to follow us. They're going to follow the examples that they see. So there's a warning. And again, church history is full of situations where the church did not heed these warnings. For if by our actions and behaviors and words and childish attitudes we cause others to stumble into sin, there will be a great judgment. And the word that is used here is scandalizo. And you hear the word scandalize, and yes, it can mean to scandalize. Yes, it can mean cause to offense. But here it takes on even a stronger meaning. It means to lead others to sin. And so we need to check over our attitudes, our behaviors, our thoughts, our practices, our habits, so that we're not deceiving or misleading or moving others to commit sin. Some of us might even be abhorred when we hear about churches that preach racist ideas, and we should be. 
But at the time, they were lost in their blindness and didn't see it. Are there blind spots that we need to be aware of? And we need to say, God, open our eyes to see so that we're not causing stumbling by what we do. That we're not causing others to follow the wrong path, giving them wrong ideas, teaching them wrong examples. There's a warning here. Then the grinding of grain in the first century, you probably have seen the pictures where you have a fixed wheel upon a grain, upon a sand, and grain would be poured out, and a stone would be put on top, and a person would walk around that wheel and grind that top wheel into the bottom wheel so that the grain is ground and prepared for usage. And oftentimes that could be done by one person. But if there was a greater need, there would be a larger stone that would be placed on top. And that was a stone that was so big that it was only a large animal like an oxen that could actually move that stone as it ground the grain. And guess which stone Jesus is referring to here? Not to the one that could be handled by one person, but to the stone that could only be moved by an oxen. It says it's better if that stone was put around your neck and you're cast into the water, which of course would lead to immediate death than to cause others to stumble. Now, there's a picture here of the gravity of misleading people into sin. Woe to those who cause another to have their trust in Christ damaged. Woe to those who cause people to have doubts or who have put obstacles in the way of people because of man-made traditions and customs. Our focus is always to be on Christ, on his sufficiency, on his goodness, on his lordship, on his power, and not to go against his truth with either sinful behavior or errors of doctrine. Jesus says in very picturesque language, it's better to be drowned in the depths of the sea with a weight that will bring you straight to the bottom than to mislead others about who Christ is, about what he has done, and cause them to even turn against him. So the solution then is to radically root out sin. Radically root out sin. And this is where we get to some really tough words. But we live in a world that is sin-filled. And we're all in it. And it affects all of us. And it affects all aspects of us. And all we have to do is read Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18 till the end, to find that all of us in our natural state are condemned before God. In fact, one of the effects of sin, when Jonathan Edwards in many of the, one of his many writings writes about the sinfulness of sin, and how often we don't even realize how deeply sinful we are and how thoroughly sinful we are in all aspects of our being, and one of the effects of sin is even the failure to realize how truly sinful we are. We want to have excuses or ideas or get around our sin. But the problem is not that we're sinners, that's the problem. The problem is we suppress that truth in our rebellion against God. And so we sin. And we sin because we are sinners. We're sinners by nature. We're born in hostility against God and enmity. We're born in opposition to him. We're born dead in our transgressions. And we manifest that every day time and time again by our active choices to sin. 
is rebelling against God. And until we face the reality of the bad news, which, frankly, the sinfulness of man is the easiest thing to prove, just read the news and study human history. And the evidence is just so overwhelming that it's undeniable. But that's why Jesus came. He came to save sinners. He came to save his people from their sins. But we face the reality first that there is sin in our hearts. And so we are warned to not be the cause for sin. Verse 7, woe to the world for temptation is to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. We don't have to convince ourselves. We know the reality of this, that there are temptations all around. And Jesus says they must come simply because we live in a sinful world and sin will have its effects. And none of us are perfect. And we will not be perfect until we see Jesus face to face. And so discipleship is a hard path to follow. Discipleship, which requires ongoing denial of self, exaltation of Christ, taking up our cross, dying to our own desires and tendencies that would draw us away from Christ, to have an active hatred of sin, having war against sin, recognizing it's a real reality every morning. From the time you open your eyes in the morning till the time they close at night, you are going to be engaged in the indwelling sin that is still there. But more and more, as we equip ourselves in the truth of God's word, we depend upon the power of the Holy Spirit. We use the means of grace that he has given us, which among other things is just gathering regularly as God's people. We learn to overcome. We learn to have victory. But we must not become complacent. For as John Owen says, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. So Jesus warns us. He warns his people not to make it worse for ourselves by having our sin rub off on other people. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Let us not be the reason that sin and temptation come in people's lives. What does that mean practically in our own lives? It means we've got to face ourselves for who we really are and our tendencies to use our mouth in the wrong way, to think about the wrong things, to let our emotions lead us astray, to we can multiply it. But in practical terms, don't be the one who is the spreader of gossip and rumors. Don't be the one who slanders others and acts out of anger. Don't be the one who pushes others to try things over which they're not comfortable. Don't be the one who perpetually complains and whines about all the difficult things in your life. Don't make every conversation about yourself and try to turn it in and what you've done or who you are. Don't be the one who displays a rebellious and disrespectful attitude towards the church and their leaders. Don't tempt someone to porn who is already struggling with addiction. Don't tempt someone to drink or drugs who is already struggling. Woe to you, Jesus says, if you are the one who leads others astray. And it's at that point we all find ourselves crying out to the Lord and say, oh, thank you that we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ and his righteousness alone. Now, Father, Teach us to walk in your ways. And if the temptation to sin is there, and we don't want to be the cause of another person stumbling, then we need to learn that less is more. 
less is more. And I'm going to read just the first part of verse 8 and the first part of verse 9 in this point. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Now Jesus, it's almost like he's back on the Sermon on the Mount. He's going to use some very graphic language here, but he wants us to see how terrible sin is and how necessary it is to put to death the deeds of sin, the deeds of the flesh, to deal with them forcefully, quickly. Jesus is saying it's better to live without some things than to live with temptation and dwell in sin and cause others to sin. Now, be careful here. Jesus is speaking metaphorically. He's not saying that we need to emasculate ourselves. This was a very common Hebrew and Middle Eastern idiom. He's not saying mutilate our bodies because ultimately cutting off a sinning hand doesn't deal with a sinful heart. But he's using language to show the necessity of doing away with that which causes sin in our lives. It's to work for the complete repudiation of sin in our lives. It's never to become comfortable with sin. Never to become comfortable with compromise. And this will take hard work. It takes effort. It takes obedience. It takes consistency. It takes the gospel. But we're in Christ. He's already declared us righteous. Now he says, live in a righteous way. But what might this mean? I've already pushed the envelope this morning, so let me go ahead and meddle a little bit. It might mean you need to cut off and throw away some things that are causing you to temptation and struggle. It might mean that you need to lose some things in this life so that you can grow in maturity and purity than to hang on to those things and suffer eternally. It might mean it's better for you to turn off the internet and disconnect than to allow the computer or the, or the phone to entice you and tempt you to sin. It might mean you need to downgrade from a smartphone to a simple phone so you can only make phone calls and not look at all the stuff that is leading you astray. It might mean you need to lose some friendships and some social groups and even move away so that you're not swallowed up in compromise. It might mean you need to brush up your resume and look for a new job and find a better working atmosphere for your spiritual well-being. Now, all of that is painful. That sounds very painful, and it well might be. But do you not hear the pain that Jesus is addressing in these verses? The worst thing in life is not to give up the pleasures and treasures that we depend upon. The worst thing is to infect our soul with poison and our mind with pollution. Dealing with sin will be painful, but the life that comes from being set free from sin is refreshing and invigorating and joyful. Pain always demands a cost. A sin always brings pain. And so we need to deal with it. There'll be pain in dealing with it. There'll be pain in letting it take its course and destroying us. So it leads us to our final point in this morning. Pain short-term or long-term, and then I'll read the rest of verses 8 and 9. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. 
It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. If it's painful to deal with sin in this life, how much more painful will it be if you've never repented and bowed before Christ in dependent and humble humility? The expressions that are given here of eternal fire and the hell of fire are not exactly the same. They're synonymous. They're just talking about the eternal punishment of sin committed against an eternally holy God. It's not a popular idea today. If you want to be a popular preacher, don't preach about hell. If you want to have friends like you, don't preach about hell. And some try to downplay it. Some try even to deny it. But Jesus didn't. He talked about it more than he talked about the reality of heaven. He talked about it as a real experience that real people will experience because of their obedience, disobedience against God. And we have in our statement of faith that we sit under the authority of the word of God and all that it teaches. And this is what it teaches. But there's hope. Jesus Christ came to die for sinners. Jesus Christ went to hell on the cross so you don't have to go to hell forever if you would but repent and believe. If you would but repent and believe like a child who depends upon his parents, you'd say, God, there is no other place for which I can turn but to you and say, have mercy on me, a sinner. Forgive me of my sins. Bring me into your family. Guide me from this moment and lead me to the path of eternal life. So in this call to humility toward God, toward ourselves and towards others, we're called to deal with our sin, which stands out here in bright light in comparison. As soon it's going to be followed by a passage that talks about how to deal with sin and with others in the community. But we need to deal with our sins first and foremost because our biggest problem in the Christian life, the biggest cause of our sin is us. And if we don't deal properly with the sin in us, we will not be in a position to deal properly with the sin in others. That's why Jesus begins this section with talking about the importance of humility, of seeing who we are before God, of who he is, of what our need is, and the fact that we ourselves need to go down, to go up, to bow before Christ, to humble ourselves before him and say, you, you alone. This means, among other things, as we talked about this list of how to not turn someone else into to sinners or causing them to stumble, focus on yourself. Confess your own sins and not those of your neighbor. If we compare ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ, we all have plenty to deal with, and let's do that accordingly. And then we'll be in a position as a community to deal with things that need to be dealt with. Now, next week, Jesus is going to talk about the parable of lost sheep, these little ones in the faith who have wandered off and what we should do with them. But until then, what are some lessons we can take away from today? Well, because humility is required to enter the kingdom of heaven, we call on the Lord to save us and to grow us in humble gratitude to him. That that would be an ongoing prayer. Lord, help me day by day to be humbly 
grateful for who you are and for what you've done. Secondly, because we are called to childlike faith, we ask the Lord to grow our confidence and trust in him. Trusting in him in all things, in all situations, every day. Because Jesus is the one building his church, we ask for his help to receive those who he's bringing into our fold. He's the Lord. Let's just humble ourselves before him. Fourthly, because it is dangerous to lead others into sin, we ask the Lord to search our hearts and help us to root out the sin therein. And lastly, because we are called to holiness, we are ready to forsake anything that is holding us back or is still holding us in sin. Is that the desire of your heart this morning? Are you willing to forsake anything that is keeping you from walking in a more holy manner with our Lord Jesus Christ? It's serious. It needs deep reflection. But more than that, it requires active obedience on our part. Let us be those who will be killing sin so that sin will not be killing us. Let us pray. Father, we are thankful this morning for the Lord Jesus Christ who loved us so much that he would tell us the truth. Who loved us so much that he would show us the truth. Who loved us so much that he would be the truth, even the truth that leads us to eternal life. And Father, we are prone to self-deception. We are prone to turning inward when we need to turn upward. And we are a needy people as we cry out to you, a God who is able to meet all of our needs. And so we pray, Father, help us with the bright light of your word and the power of your Holy Spirit to deal with sin and apply the truths of the gospel to our lives that we might become more like the one we confessed, even our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. stand together and close out our service as we sing this confession the Lord is my salvation mm-hmm.